Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. In 1921, white citizens of Tulsa burned down the black neighborhood of Greenwood, killing hundreds of residents, ruining dozens of businesses, and destroying a community of 10,000 people. For generations, that history was buried, surfacing only through the determined research of a professor here or a novelist there. It wasn't until 2001 that the state of Oklahoma commissioned a report revealing the extent of the damage. 100 years on, the Tulsa massacre is the most infamous of a number of 20th century efforts by white mobs to destroy black communities. R.J. Young, author of the memoir Let It Bang and a Fox Sports Analyst, offers his perspective in the new book Requiem for the Massacre, both as a native Tulsan deeply embedded in its present and as a Black writer conflicted by the tone of the centennial events a year ago. R.J. Young joins us from his home in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Thank you so much for talking to me, R.J. Could not be more thrilled to be talking about this, quite honestly, because... This is a story that has haunted me in a very particular way, and it seems that the books that I write are about things that haunt me. So thank you for taking an interest in it. Yeah, I mean, I want to talk about how you first got haunted Mm. by the Tulsa Race Massacre, the events of 1921, which only recently were called such. Prior to that, it was a a race riot, which I think does a, a big disservice to what happened. But when did you first hear about it? Because I think for a lot of people, the centennial was the first time they had heard about it. So when did you first hear about it as a as a Tolson? About 20 years before they did. Uh, <laughs> you know, 2001. Uh, I'm in freshman English. And my teacher at the time uh, was Dr. Simcoe. And it just kind of came up in this very organic way around an earlier uh, exchange that we had had about just what Tulsa is and where Booker T stands in it. And Booker T is one of the only parts of Greenwood that persisted, and in large part because it was not in the downtown district proper that uh, was raised to the ground. And I was fascinated by this, not because it happened, but because she was the first person to tell me about it. And then there are books that are written about it. Uh, Scott Ellis' Worst Death in a Promised Land. Uh, There was a Centennial Commission at the time, around 2000, not unlike what we had just a couple of years ago that went about trying to evaluate what had occurred and how it occurred. And it was a story that I wanted to know more about. And the more I tried to find out about it, um, the more I kept running into people that either knew a ton, right, or didn't know anything at all. And I tried to figure out where that chasm begins and ends, right? Because there's, there's, you know, everything, and then there's, you know, nothing. And then there's somebody in the middle there. And how do you get from one end of the spectrum to the other? And comes back to, quite literally, do you believe people when they tell you things that they know to be true? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that suppression also was state mandated in a lot of ways and for a long time. Like, you're, I guess, lucky in that you were trying to learn more about it in the early 2000s when some of that suppression had disappeared. But prior to that, there were a lot of powerful people, a lot of them white, trying to prevent anybody from getting from one end of the chasm to the other. What was that suppression of history like? Well, let's start with race being a math problem before it is a social problem, right? Uh, One of the facts that I love to put in front of people is 13% of the United States is black or identifies as black according to the U.S. Census. And 
6% of that population is black and male, right? Which is to say that 7% is black and female. And then you take it back to Tulsa, which is founded in a state that leaned toward the South uh, politically when it made its first law, segregation of streetcars. And then you think about this enclave that is Greenwood, that's prosperous and is doing things the way that white folks had done things and was having a good time doing it until such time as white folks had had enough for one reason or another. And that is a story that recirculates throughout time and across the country. Uh, it's a great book by Cam McWhorter about uh, Red Summer, 1919, basically a couple of years before uh, the carnage comes to Greenwood, in which we had these riots, massacres all over the country in pockets of the United States. And then you have the massacre occur. And then it becomes a race to who gets to tell the story and how. So when you say state mandated, you can talk about the city, you can talk about the state, you can also just talk about people. There was a grand jury that decided that black folks were the reason that their own community was burned down and they had killed each other. There were other folks within that society that believed that perhaps we owe black folks for the carnage that we wrought. And then you have, over time, folks that just don't want to talk about it. And this is in a city that has two major newspapers at the time, the Tulsa World and the Tulsa Tribune. Both of those papers are run by white folks that run Tulsa. One of those is Richard Lloyd Jones, who is also the person perhaps that had the most to do publicly with fanning this flame of racism and sparking what we know to be a massacre with an op-ed. Uh, what is it? Nab Negro Lynch tonight in the Tulsa Tribune the day before. And nobody can find another uh, editorial that might say something else. Matter of fact, there's one paper that survives that day and there's a big space missing from it. Nobody knows if it's a coupon or if it's an op-ed or it's an offending piece, but we know that somebody wanted to remove something that they may or may not have thought was incriminating. And then over the next 50 years, there are only a couple of instances in which the massacre is even talked about publicly. One of those is in a master's thesis, 1946, at the University of Tulsa. And then the other one is in the Oklahoma Eagle, uh, in a couple of columns in the late 1960s. And from there you get uh, Scott Ellsworth's book. So you have basically 50 years of people just not want to talk about it. And to talk about it is to risk either being shouted down at best or being threatened at worst. So there's about 50 years that goes by without either paper making any sort of inference about what happened in 1921. As a matter of fact, I think the Tribune finally got around to it with the 75th anniversary 1976. Uh, by that time, we'd had World War II, right? We had, well, we'd, we'd just come out of a world war. We'd had Korea. We had Vietnam. We'd had the civil rights in the 60s. And during this time, you also had things like Martin Luther King coming through town and not really raiding, which feels wild to say out loud, but it's true. And you continue abreast as a red state becomes redder. And black folks that at once lived here had just scurried either to the West Coast, Oakland, to uh, the Midwest, Chicago, but basically just I'm not going to be here because they have shown that they hate us and that they will burn us out and kill us. And in that, you don't have a lot of, a lot of people that are in the state of Oklahoma that are willing to talk about the massacre at some length. Also, you have some social dynamics here, right? Who wants to be ostracized in their community? Who wants to be the person that is the downer at the party? Why don't you talk about the good things that happened as opposed to the bad things that happened? 
And I think that part in particular is the reason why suppression persisted. As much as I want to throw it at the state and it deserves a ton, there's also the culture of, I want hope. I want happy. Why are you bringing me down? And somewhere along the lines, we decided that we just want to be kind. We just want to be happy. Nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't fix anything either. So when did that change? When did it go from just being acknowledged to becoming more of a narrative? I know it's obviously still on a journey and mo a lot of your book is about assessing that narrative and like whether it really is a reckoning. Um, but, you know, to even get to your book, what happened between, you know, the 75th anniversary or after that 50 year period to make people speak up more? Mass media is the easier answer, I think, uh, when you have folks like, for instance, uh, Colson Whitehead during uh, the COVID period did a nice talk with a local bookstore here in which one of my friends, uh, Ben Montgomery, was leading uh, moderation on it. Ben Montgomery's from the state of Oklahoma and uh, also helped raise me as a journalist. And he, Colson admitted to Ben that he had not heard about the race massacre until about eight years ago. And at the time, this is like 2012. And I'm going, okay, this is wild. And this is also right as Watchmen, the HBO show, had become a thing. And Damon Lindelof and Cord Jefferson told a great story that owes its very foundation to the Tulsa race massacre and to all that we know that is true about it. And that was the part where people were asking honestly, wait a second, did they make this up or did this happen? And as more people come to find out that that is not a figment of their imagination, but that is history laid at the ground of fantasy, they became more interested. So perhaps the correct answer is just in the last three years or as we were leading up to the centennial. And then it became, I think, uh, a race for people to get rich. And that's the part that I really got a problem with. Yeah, I think that comes back to people's motivations, I guess, for memorializing this event. And if you have money at stake, whether you're going to be interested in like exhuming stories that are not triumphant or hopeful. I mean, what was your experience of the 2021 centennial events? And I guess what like. Obviously, it rubbed you the wrong way enough for you to write a book about it. So <laughs> what happened? So there were so many of these books that were recounting the massacre and not so many books telling me what had happened up until now. And then to be a person that could talk about, write about, live in these events as they're happening, as we're coming toward this place of reconciliation, it would been that would have been joyous. That would have been fun. And I think that's the reason why I'm so critical is I live here. Uh, this is my home. I own my home here. I went to high school here. I went to college here. But I say that to say, you're not going to fool me. And I know about all the things that you're not going to talk about. So even a year before that, we are the place where Donald Trump got to have his rally during the, the plague. And we are the people that boarded up our own businesses because we were afraid of each other. If that's happening in Tulsa, a bastion of conservative thought and uh, religious rhetoric, where else is it happening? And then you talk about where I would talk about the massacre as it relates to the centennial. 
And what I found was a lot of people that wanted to say we had done better since then. I'm willing to let that go in one or two respects. But I'm not willing to let that go in, in an economic argument. I'm not going to let that go in an educational argument either, uh, frankly. I mean, uh, the city is still segregated. Most black folks live in North Tulsa. Most white folks live in South Tulsa. South Tulsa is affluent. North Tulsa is not. There is a lot to be said about what's going on in the crevices, right? Uh, I, one of the people that takes issue with uh, Greenwood Rising, which is the museum at Archer and Greenwood that is supposedly honoring this heinous event. And when I walked through there, I didn't, I didn't feel that. I feel honored. I felt like we were reliving some things in a way that would make white folks feel maybe bad, maybe better about having been educated about something they didn't know much about. But one of the things that I point to is, for instance, uh, there's a quote from James Baldwin on the side of the building. James Baldwin never set foot in Tulsa. Love James Baldwin. Never came here. Maya Angelou did. And she actually had things to say to black folks, in particular black men at the University of Tulsa in the early 90s. Never hear about that. The pictures and the words that they use are not for the folks that survived the massacre and are not for the folks that uh, live in Tulsa. They're for tourists who want to feel good about having set foot here. The idea of the Kinsey Collection coming here, which is a tremendous endeavor to bring back great black art, never comes here if not for thousands of people being killed cost basically two days in 1921 and this need to all of a sudden talk about it because I think people are embarrassed right um, and then the idea of just how the the museum got built or even what's over there I'm looking at lease prices to have a business there and how people were pushed out of their leases because well this thing is happening and we know that there are a lot of people that are going to come here so we're going to raise the price or that the Greenwood Cultural Center, which I'd been going to since I was a kid, which is much more of a community center than it is some sort of museum, was going to get this renovation that went to Greenwood Rising. And all of a sudden, the Hilly Foundation found land on a corner that everybody just thought was dilapidated and vacant to put this building. And I got to see Maggie Hilly say this is what she wanted to do. And I get to know that knowing that across the street, her husband owns the building. And it just all kind of felt bad to me. Yeah. The section where you talk about the commission um, also comes up in the context of reparations. Um, and it is interesting, I think, that a lot of people first learned of the massacre from Tennessee Coates's essay, The Case for Reparations, because it's mentioned in there. Um, and reparations for survivors or the descendants of survivors is still, I want to say, an open question, because hopefully it happens, but it hasn't yet. Um, so the centennial, correct me if I'm wrong, cost $30 million to put on. Would that have covered reparations for the survivors and their descendants? Well, that is uh, a question that perhaps is better pointed to their attorneys as to what they're <laughs> owed, right? Fair. Um, however, I think money is how we also keep scoring, how we say some level of we're sorry, right? Uh, and I also point to other instances where reparations have been paid and in the form they've been paid. Where I have a fight is not whether or not reparations should be paid. They should be. And I think most people uh, agree with that. 
it's that Tolsons believe they don't owe. In particular, white Tolsons don't believe they owe. And the way I look at this is, uh, again, I'm fortunate to own my house, which means that I get an accounting from our tax assessor about where my taxes on my house go. Some of it goes to the local school. Some of it goes to the local library. I'm fine with $20 in reparations tax, $40 in reparations tax. And when you look at the number of people that own homes in this particular county, be a lot of money that you could pull out and you could pay directly to individuals who were impacted. Where I think many people have a problem with that is that they're not getting any of that money. And again, capitalism, we keep score by how much money we get. But I, I am curious to see whether or not this hearing gets to go on because that's as we're talking in October of 2022, we think we're going to get to something like a hearing. We think we're going to get to something like uh, these three remaining survivors being represented in the court of law uh, and then a judge deciding what and how much they are owed, if anything. And that feels something like justice, but not really, right? The point to take away from this is that we're past 100 years now, and we still cannot have a hearing about this. And there's still been no accounting for the folks who waged war in Greenwood. I run into a lot of folks, uh, white mostly, uh, live in Tulsa or have family live in Tulsa, that have a story about uh, their people hiding black people in their homes or, you know, getting black people out of town. You know, I never run into any white folks that were doing the shooting. Just strange that way. You know, it's just wild because nobody wants to pick up the blame for this. And I think that is, that's defeating. Um, I use the term coward a lot because it gets people's attention, but I can think of nothing more cowardly than not taking ownership for something you did that was wrong and then suffering the consequences for that. What do we do if we cannot be honest with each other about having wronged each other? And that's at the bottom of reparations. Anything else is just PR. You've managed to interview some people who survived the massacre who are still around today. Do you get a sense of what it feels like for them to finally be able to tell that story? Do you feel like they can tell the story in its entirety? I think they get to talk for as long as they want to. And frankly, you have a lot of folks that just don't want to because it is such a traumatic event in their lives. And to relive that over and over and over again, I think is a level of cruelty, honestly. Um, that's why we write books. You can experience someone else's trauma, experience someone else's point of view without actually forcing them to suffer for your, not even entertainment, but just uh, your understanding. If I am a journalist and I'm trying to find a story out or suss a story out that hasn't been told before, yeah, it's necessary. And people get to tell you and did, go to hell, RJ. I don't want to talk about this. But that also is revealing, right? You you want to talk about the good things that happen in your life. You want to talk about surviving the bad things that happen in your life. You want to talk about raising children, grandchildren, going to school, finding a way back. But that's not what people want to know, right? So yeah, they get to tell it. But are you listening to what they don't say as much as what they do say? And then are you taking them at their word, right? That's the really big deal to me. When we start to parse the words and we start to parse what people's memories are from 100 years ago or even several years thereafter, then we're getting into some water that I really don't like. And that's why the public record is such a big deal on this, right? I need to know what the grand jury said. I need to know what a lawsuit says. 
I need to know exactly what the laws were and what they were forbidden from, from doing as they're trying to rebuild, like the fire ordinance. You cannot rebuild. <laughs> you can't rebuild your home because it's a fire hazard. I'm sorry, what? I can't re rebuild my home that was burned to the ground because the ashes are a fire hazard? Well, Buck Franklin took that to the court, state Supreme Court, and he won the right for folks to rebuild their homes. That's not a story that a lot of folks want to hear because at the bottom of it is a truly ugliness in which you burn the place down and then you don't allow them to rebuild what was lost. So people leave. You know? um, that's not a story that I find particularly satisfying, but it is the truth. And how do we reconcile from that? That's a question I keep asking myself. Picking away at this this sort of triumphant narrative and the way that people do feel comfortable talking about the massacre is often centered around this idea of of black excellence, black Wall Street. And I mean, you point out that Greenwood was and is a black community that banded together under segregation out of necessity because there simply was no place else to go in Tulsa. How does your understanding of Greenwood differ from that sort of triumphalist narrative of black excellence? I think you would have to start with dismantling black excellence as an idea. Um, I point out to most folks that I would be considered a part of that uh, based on what I've been able to achieve in my life. But I'm not so arrogant as to believe that I am somehow anointed or somehow that much smarter than anyone else. Uh, I got lucky and I work hard. Happens to a lot of people. I also happen to be a black man, which is another discussion altogether, right? Black excellence revolves around Black Wall Street, not Greenwood. Black Wall Street is a misnomer. Uh, first, show me the person that was using the term black in the 1920s to describe black folks. Okay, start with that. Then show me what about it is Wall Street? Show me a bank. Show me a stock exchange. It's not there. Then tell me who said it. It's attributed to Booker T. Washington, but he died in 1915. Didn't set foot in Tulsa. Closest he got was Muskogee. And when he was there, he had nothing to say about Greenwood. And then you have this myth, this story that people want to tell uh, that I also put in the vein of W.B. Du Bois and the Talented Tenth about how there are a few select black people that will lead the race into some better position. No, no, I don't see that either. Uh, a, I don't think that I would have been included in that 10th percent. Uh, and B, I think to expect black people to be excellent is gloriously oppressive, uh, amazingly so. And that we have to be so much better than our counterparts to earn any level of respect is debilitating and paralyzing. I don't want to be excellent. I don't want to have to be excellent. I want to be able to make mistakes and live uh, as humanly as I can. And I don't want to talk about Greenwood as if it was somehow magical. Um, you've heard the term magical Negroes? That's where I think that this goes, is we get into a territory that, again, there are white folks that want to believe there's a good group of black people, and these are our black people. And I would say, no, they're just black people, just like they're just white people. Some are good, some are bad. Some are amazing under the circumstances, and some are not. And somehow or another, we can't come to agree on that. But what we can come to agree on is Jackie Robinson is awesome. 
Dr. King is awesome. My grandma is awesome. And then we expect most black people to meet that bar. Good luck with that. Like, I'm not, I can't do that. I don't think there are a lot of people that can do that. So knowing that, how do we move forward from just the understanding that Greenwood was there out of necessity? And the irony, too, about that phrase is that it, it wasn't Booker T. Washington who said it. It was a black woman. And she didn't say that, obviously. Well, Negroes Wall Street is also worthwhile, right, and of the day and, and fitting. It also washes. Now, my question to you is, did you know that before you read my book? No. That vexes me. A black woman of the time, of the city, who wrote the first real accounting of the massacre, wrote it down. And then we took it from her and we attributed it to a black man of some excellence and we never investigated it again. I can think of no better metaphor uh, for talking about Tulsa race massacre and race in America than that. What kinds of conversations do you want to have after writing this book? What would you like the conversation to look like in Tulsa or even broadly about the massacre? Wow. Um, I think I would start with how are we going to honor the dead we just found in the Oak Lawn Cemetery? How are we going to do that better than we can do anything else? Better than any centennial event, uh, better than any memorial. How do we do that? Because that in and of itself is why we are here. You buried those bodies. You told us that you didn't, and you lied about it for 100 years. And then a mayor who took a flyer, <laughs> didn't expect it to, to find anything, found more than he was uncomfortable with. And even now, they're trying not to talk about it anymore, as there still might be some bodies that are still there to be exhumed. So how do you do that? And as you're doing that, are you having conversations about how this can never happen again? And how do we keep this from ever happening again? Uh, I think about the Holocaust in that way. It exists because we continue to talk about it, right? We continue to pay respect. And I would shout from the heavens as many times as I can that this happened and be reverent of this happening and remind that it can happen again. There's something tremendously powerful about being able to learn and or walk forward from that sort of carnage. And to think better of each other, to do something right by each other and do something right by each other's memory. Those are the conversations I want to have. They're not theoretical. They're not what organization can we create. They're mostly, how are you a better human being now, knowing all of this and knowing that you're capable of this? We have links in the show notes to R.J. Young's new book, Requiem for the Massacre, A Black History on the Conflict, Hope, and Fallout of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.